This Week in Startups is brought to you by SendPro Online from Pitney Bowes. Save time and money no matter what you ship or mail. Try it free for 30 days and get a free 10-pound scale when you visit pb.com slash twist. LinkedIn Marketing. To redeem a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com slash thisweekinstartups and Silicon Valley Bank, who, in partnership with Founders Pledge, has formed the COVID-19 Global Impact and Innovation Fund. This fund will deliver resources directly to organizations that can help make the most immediate impact in the fight against COVID-19. Learn more at svb.com impact. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Startups. We are here in month two um, on day 56 of my shelter-in-place quarantine, and I'm losing my goddamn mind. Oof, this is not easy for me. 100% extroverted on the Myers-Briggs test. Uh, but I have found great, uh, great joy in doing the podcast and continuing on. And um, it's really great to see how uh, we've really uh, mitigated against the coronavirus here in the Bay Area. Um, and it seems like we're going to start getting to work uh, or going back to work slowly. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. And today we're going to have a wide ranging discussion with long term friend of the pod, Keith Raboy. Uh, he's obviously a general partner over at Founders Fund, serial chief operating officer, I think is probably what you're known for just being a great operator and a great thinker. Uh, welcome back to the program, Keith. Pleasure to be with you. How are you holding up under this? I'm assuming you went into shelter in place in the beginning of March, like the rest of us that second week or so, or did you go a little earlier, a little later? March 16th. Um, so right on time, uh, not before, not after. Um, I'm going a little bit insane, uh, stir crazy, even though I'm very introverted. Um, being deprived of human beings in any human contact is not particularly productive. Uh, I also enjoy working with founders and meeting with them in person to problem solve and consider new investments and, you know, remote board meetings, remote pitches is just not an adequate substitute. It's brutal. Yeah. And, and I think people, I was talking to Ruloff, um, our mutual friend who you worked with at PayPal and is now at Sequoia and, he told me he feels exhausted. Like he's, he feels like an hour on Zoom is like three hours in the real world just because you have to look at the camera and it just, it feels more exhausting. And, and after, I don't know how many, what's the m largest number of hours you've done on Zoom in a day now? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think it's probably about, I try to keep it to about six or so because it is so exhausting. There's so many more, not, you have to pay so much more attention to extract information versus all the nonverbal cues that you pick up on um, when you're in, in, in real life with people. Uh, you do save some time, uh, at least for broadcast of information, dissemination of information. It's fairly efficient. You don't have as much chit-chat and distractions. However, for dialogue, discussion, debate, decision-making uh, among controversial alternatives, it's definitely not a substitute. And I like the interactive uh, debate, discussion, um, you know, sort of triangulation to the best possible answer. And video conferencing doesn't work very well. And then also being a founder-driven investor where I'm primarily evaluating the qualities and characteristics of a founder or founding team, it really deprives me of my oxygen. I think it's much easier for people who are technology or market-driven investors to survive in this new world order, but it uh, found it in incredibly challenging for myself. 
it's exactly my experience because I too feel like my superpower as an investor is reading people and getting to know people and those subtle tells of like, is this person going to quit? Do they really care about this idea? You know, and, and Zoom removes all passion or nuance from a discussion. I just, I feel like I'm getting no energy and it really reminds me of online poker players versus in-person poker players. The online poker players are looking at math. They're looking at metrics, just like you're saying, maybe they're mar- it might, the equivalent might be a market-driven person, but you know, if you're trying to get a read or a tell on a person and understand the relative strength based on what they're saying and how they're saying it, you just can't do it. It's brutal. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. That's a, that's a, probably an odd metaphor. I mean, I'm obviously not a very sophisticated poker player like you are, but that seems right to me. So, for example, I have a former colleague of mine who is outstanding at interviewing and assessing people. And truthfully, he actually speaks during most of the interview. Nevertheless, he always walks away with the most insightful, accurate uh, sort of description of the people I send him. And I'm always confused by this, or it took me years of being confused because I would talk to my friends and were candidates and say, you know, what did you think of meeting with X? And they'd say, well, I didn't say anything. But then I'd get this beautifully, you know, articulated uh, summary of people, sometimes candidates I've known for like a decade, and with these bullet points that were so prescient and so accurate. And I, I was trying to figure out how he does it. And I think what he actually does is he can just watch your eyes huh. and between how you react, he can tell whether you grok concepts or not or how fast you pick up on concepts. And he's kind of watching your face <laughs> face and eye motion and he can, he can completely read you that way. I think that's impossible basically to do in a video conference. Leads me to kind of a related question. You know, you and I, I think, are of a similar Gen X cohort and we live through got a number of crises uh, from the 2008 financial crisis where the stock market, people forget, the NASDAQ, I think it was around 5,000. It went down to 1,500. I mean, it was a two-thirds loss, I think great, much greater than 50% at the peak. That seemed like it was you know, going to be totally cataclysmic. And of course, we came out of that with an incredible run that we've you know just finished up, a 12-year run or so, longest bull market of our lifetimes, and I think since um, World War II. And- we lived through the dot-com bust with, with 9-11 after it, which is a double whammy. And people say everything's going to change. Everything's going to change. Nothing will ever be the same. And I had this flashback to 9-11 when everybody said nothing would be the same. And to 2008 when people said nothing would be the same. And the dot-com. And everything became the same. So is this time a black swan of black swans? Or are we going to go back to normal? I, I suspect this is certainly more like 2000 to 2003, which was a sustained, you know, sort of devastating nuclear winter for Silicon Valley. And then eventually, right around 2004 to five, so roughly four to five years later, we emerged actually quite strong and st- arguably stronger. But, you know, it wouldn't have been that pleasant to be an investor, entrepreneur, or executive or individual contributor from 2000 to 2004. And I, I suspect that's more like what we're going to see than 2008 was more like a three to six month blip in Silicon Valley and the technology companies, probably because the financial services crisis, the, the, the global financial crisis was really a crisis for financial services that had indirect or collateral damage on other fields, other verticals like technology. Whereas 2000, 2003 was a direct assault on technology, the quote unquote internet bubble. And therefore, it was much more meaningful, much more protracted in terms of its impact on our landscape. 
right now, because software has eaten the world, you know, Mark Andreessen was basically right. The entire economy is predicated on technology, software uh, on down, and therefore anything that affects the economy as a whole absolutely has massive impact in Silicon Valley to entrepreneurs, to investors, to employees. And what was magical about the time period you're talking about, the 2000, you know, post 9-11 emerged Web 2.0 movement and a whole new cohort of founders um, who were some of the alumni, of course, of uh, PayPal. Um, You saw uh, Jeremy do Yelp. Um, You and Max were working on, I think, Slide in the 2005 timeframe about, or was that 2007? Uh, Max Max started in 2005. I joined in like 2007, eight. I was at LinkedIn, which is another one example. Absolutely. I launched uh, LinkedIn in 2003. There's obviously uh, Steve, Chad, and Javed who launched YouTube. Um, you know, the whole PayPal crowd was, um, you know, back to work and back in business pretty quickly, which is actually, you know, the rationale I have of why a bunch of misfits, because most of us were misfits, we weren't really connected to the establishment in Silicon Valley in any material sense, were able to move more to the middle of the ecosystem because everybody else was terrified and afraid and really believed that there wasn't going to be another generation of technology innovation or certainly not a consumer uh, wave of innovation. And so everybody was like literally refusing to write checks other than basically us. And very few people were starting companies. And so the people who were starting companies, we became a magnet uh, for advice and for capital. And because there was another wave, in fact, probably a larger wave, um, it allowed us to become pretty critically important to the entire ecosystem in Silicon Valley. It's it's pretty hilarious, too, because you you define that group as a bunch of misfits and then you know, in this last five, 10 years, you guys have been uh, coronated the like the establishment and the old boys club, as it were, knowing many of you from Elon to Peter to Sachs, misfits, great description. It's fairly accurate. You guys are a bunch of misfits, absolutely unmanageable, unable to work for other people, you know, argumentative, chess playing maniacs and pretty accurate um yeah i mean there's this famous cover story that peter really liked um and still enjoys i think uh telling stories and anecdotes about but there's a cover story of red herring which was earth to paypal (laughs) and this was 2001 or two but it basically conveyed you know the uh, the, uh, how crazy the rest of silicon valley's establishment because red herring was a silicon valley establishment publication it wasn't like an east coast uh, media pub and it was conveying like, these people are crazy. They think they're building a company in post 2000. They think they're going to go public post 2000. They think this is going to be an important company. Who are these weirdos? And, you know, from every, from every angle, from our confidence and belief to our management style and, you know, the way we operated the company, all of this was very heretical to traditional Silicon Valley norms. Um, some of this stuff has become, you know, much more common. Some of it was actually ahead of its time and quite prescient. Uh, but in any event, the uh, retro, the revisionist history, which is like the PayPal people, you know, had some network, had some connections, is just simply false. Uh, yeah. The eBay group was more like the mainstream establishment, Princeton, MBAs, management consultants, and you know, we were the 
Israeli debate society or something. Yeah, no, South African immigrants. Yeah, yes. just a, a bunch all of Im- all immigrants, basically all immigrants except me. Um, <laughs> all, <laughs> all immigrants. Uh, very confrontational uh, culture. Uh, debate culture. It was the debate club. Is like a really good. I mean, like literally the best debates I've had in my life come from my friendships with I think that group of people. Um, very independent thinkers, I think, as well, uh, and willing to mix it up, and, and which is obviously a great strategy, but it's sort of like, uh, um, what's the quote from Game of Thrones? Chaos is a ladder, I think, is yeah. the... You know, I, wish like, I, I wish I was as uh, uh, talented and articulate at debating as I was back in uh, 2000 to 2003. Uh, my emails, I occasionally get the chance and opportunity to read an old email thread, <laughs> and that... And then I've decayed so badly. Uh, just to keep up with that crowd uh, required a precision of thought, insight, and a whole nother level than what I what I've been doing for the last decade. With SendPro Online from Pitney Bowes, you can simply print postage stamps and shipping labels, even when you're working remotely. Yes. For as low as $4.99, that's $4.99 a month, you'll get access to special discounts and save up to 40% off USPS Priority Mail. Plus, for being a This Week in Startups listener, you'll receive a free 30-day trial to get started and a free 10-pound scale to ensure that you never overpay, which always made me crazy. Some SendPro online benefits include printing shipping labels and stamps even when you're working remotely. Scheduling packaging pickups is easy and tracking shipments from departure to arrival is seamless. And you're going to save up to $0.05 cents on every letter and up to 40% off USPS Priority Mail. If you don't know what Priority Mail is, it's a great deal. Starting at $4.99 a month, that's $4.99. You can also calculate the exact postage online, print right from your PC or Mac, and avoid trips to the post office. Go ahead and visit pb.com slash twist to access this special offer for a free 30-day trial plus a free 10-pound scale to get you started. That's pb.com, really short domain name, slash T-W-I-S-T to experience huge savings in your shipping costs with a free trial of SendPro Online from Pitney Bowes. Let's get back to this amazing episode. Well, and I think what's interesting about this is going to be kind of a weird segue, but when you look at here we are 20 years later, two decades later, everybody grows up. Everybody's got a, you know, a range of impressive to, you know, outlier success in that, in that group. And then we superimpose that upon the dialogue around coronavirus, around the once in a lifetime pandemic. And there's a group of people straight down the middle, and I'll, I'll call it Silicon Valley debaters, Silicon Valley debate club of people who got on coronavirus early and got on a lot of what was fundamentally going on and what possible solutions were and that we should be even paying attention to that. And then you look at the other cohorts, the politicians who have equally gotten it wrong left and right. I'd like to get into that with you um, and and try to define your politics because it is a little hard to pin down. I think all of ours are hard to define now. And then on the other side, you have the media, which in its wokeness and uh, hatred of Trump seems to have lost any ability to really uh, consider any position that isn't anti-Trump. So then you're left with this group of people who are down the middle, whether it's you or Sachs, talking about masks or Balaji, who we had on the podcast two weeks ago. Talk to me about what you think has happened 
in the intellectual space, when a crisis happens and people start discussing it, um, I, I would rather go to the entrepreneur class, I'll call it the entrepreneur class, to get my information to debate the subject than to go to the media or the government. I agree. I think especially in a novel, newfangled, rapidly emerging threat, it's unlikely more slow-moving, more traditional uh, people who basically apply pre-existing paradigms are unlikely to be right. I mean, basically what makes you a quote-unquote expert is you're typically an expert in the prior paradigms. And when you have something new that's basically unprecedented, almost by definition, the prior paradigms don't work. And so the people who are typically most blind are actually the incumbents or the experts. And this is what we see in Silicon Valley across any industry. So the, the more uh, volatility, the more velocity, the higher the velocity of change, the more unlikely it is that pre-existing institutions that are large are likely to be right. So if, you know, if we saw coronavirus number two, that was a species of coronavirus one, I suspect more of the establishment would get things more right because that's what establishment people know how to do and establishment institutions are adept at processing. But when you confront a new problem that's never been confronted before, you need first principles thinkers more often than not. Explain for people who are hearing that term first principles, but haven't looked it up. Uh, how, do you, how do you think about first principles, what it is, why it's important? I think it's important basically to get, uh, it's basically the application of logic and thoughtful logic to a set of problems. And it starts with basically asking a series of why questions or why, why not. And basically, you keep digging until you get to a why not or why a why a why not that's thoughtful and sort of like ground truth. Um, it's a technique that a lot of executives who are very successful apply, which is lots of people in an organization will say, "Well, we can't do X," and the "we can't" is a either a substitute for "I don't want to do X." that the pain of X is very high. <laughs> other people other people have told me that X can't be done. It's very rarely a actual factual determination that X is metaphysically impossible. And so what, what tends to get one promoted and leads to success in Silicon Valley is constantly asking the next question, which is why not? And then digging and driving and driving. So there's a, a really funny, amusing example that some of my colleagues and friends tell about my days at Square. When we had a really important deadline in shipping some very complicated new hardware products um, to meet some mandates uh, that basically Visa and the media uh, sort of imposed on us, and we had to do a pretty hard swap of our hardware in a very compressed period of time. And so we had to build a lot of hardware inventory really, really quickly and, and then completely switch out, swap out uh, 10 different retail store to store chains change our shipping process uh, to individual users. And so it's pretty messy and there's a very specific deadline and we weren't going to meet it. And the hardware team is very adept. The hardware team is led by a great guy from Apple. The team's really, really competent, but they were just going to be short. And I didn't have a lot of um, negotiating rope with Visa. And so, you know, we're trying to triangulate what to do. We had several, several meetings on problem solving. And we're sitting through these meetings and I would ask a series of questions about like, well, you know, how many lines are we running per day? You know, how many days per week, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, the math would add up and they'd say, we can get 300,000 units by this date, February 15th. And I'd say I needed 500,000. And so I'd constantly run into, I'd constantly be probing, 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 probing for arguably hours and end. 
And then finally, in the middle of one meeting, I looked up and said, are we running, are we running production on Sunday? And the team looks back and says, no. And I said, well, why can't we run production on Sunday? <laughs> you can't. Yeah, well, and, and they actually looked up and they said, we could, but it would cost 15% more. And I said, well, there was no part of me that said there was a cost requirement for this hard swap because the difference between 300000 500000 at 15% is a rounding error in the grand scheme of life. Long-term, the cost matters, but to meet the deadline imposed by Visa, it absolutely does not matter. But they, despite like a decade plus of expertise of shipping hardware for Apple at infinite scale, like I'm talking like billions of pieces of hardware, hmm. they actually had never considered running the line on Sunday. <laughs> and then it took an amateur like, like Keith, who knows nothing about hardware, certainly back then, he knew literally nothing about hardware, to just ask a basic question. Like you said six days times three ships. Uh, there is a seventh day. Have you thought yeah. about that? And yeah. the answer is, oh, shit. Uh, no. Right. So we actually we made our deadline. Uh, we started working on Sundays. As a fresh eyes on a problem is one of the great investment theses. Uh, these eyes. Is that the plural of theses? These eyes. Uh, one of the great theses I've had, which is, hey, you know, a person who has not been in the taxi cab business might have a fresh approach to this. And a person who is not a meditation expert might be better to run a meditation app than somebody who spent 30 years in an ashram meditating. Like they might not have the secret cows to say, oh no, it can only be done this way. Oh, yeah. you cannot do it that I way. Totally, I totally concur. I almost never, both as an angel for 13 years or now as a professional investor for seven, have funded somebody with domain expertise. I, don't, I believe people with domain expertise basically learn like what you can't do, not what you could do. Um, even when I do diligence, I very rarely will consult with experts in quotes. And if I do, I ask a species of the same questions we just went through, which is explain to me why this can't work. I don't want to hear anything else. Like I yeah. literally don't want to ask them questions about whether they think it would work or what the probabilities are. I want them to explain with a simple factual statement what is actually blocking it from working. And occasionally, uh, a good expert will highlight something that's a very specific, very narrow, intractable problem. But if they don't have an answer like that, then I'm going to invest. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost as if in what we do, looking for outlier results, the incumbents and the super knowledgeable people believing in the idea means it would have existed already. Whereas, and it can't possibly be breakout. If it's already existed and it's already in their wheelhouse, then it it's not necessary. It reminds me you have a of your pin tweet, which is like something to the effect of, hey, listen, if you want to find a great industry to go after, find one with a low NPS score and just verticalize it and make it better. Uh, yeah, explain, yeah. unpack that tweet for us. Yeah. Okay. Let's start. First thing, I'll, I'll kind of give you a PayPal anecdote. Um, you know, at PayPal, we had 254 people in the Bay Area and then another set in Nebraska. But of the 254 people in the Bay Area, only three had any degree of financial services background. So to me, that's about the rate, right, uh, proper ratio. One percent. <laughs> yeah, three, three, three of 254. One was our general counsel, which made some sense. Yeah. Um, Landmines. So same, same rough ratio, by the way, at Square. Um, if you included me as someone who had some financial services expertise, which is definitely debatable, um, you probably in the first 300 people had, again, like two people. So I think that's a good dynamic. Uh, so that's kind of you know my my philosophy on the uh, the tweet. Um, you know I realized that a lot of the best investments um, that I'd made 
had some common characteristics. Square certainly uh, this would apply to, which is find a very fragmented industry mm. that has typically extremely poor customer satisfaction, whether you use NPS or uh, you know proxy for it, and then figure out how to improve the experience by creating an end-to-end solution, roughly verticalize it. And that's a great formula if you can figure out how to do that. And so I you know, sort of described the key components in a tweet when I was actually on vacation a few years ago uh, and realized that it actually applied to many, many businesses that I'd had indirect um, sort of success with as either an executive or an investor, but without a clarifying overarching theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I tried to distill it all together. So now for the last two or three years, I've applied it uh, more proactively and you know, sort of filter things that way. But I need to tell you the world is changing and that businesses are being forced to adapt in many different ways. It's uncertain times, but we're going to get through this and you need to make sure your marketing gets results right now. You need to have that tight uh, so you can keep your business vibrant during these challenging times and LinkedIn can help you reach people who are looking for opportunities to help their business. With over 62 million decision makers on LinkedIn, you're able to connect with the right business leaders. 71% of people use information on LinkedIn to inform their business decisions. I I can't believe this is not 100. Uh, I use it all the time to make business decisions. And with LinkedIn ads... You can make sure your messages are getting through to these decision makers. LinkedIn marketing can help you build campaigns using objective-based advertising. That means you can customize the campaign experience based on the actions you want your customers to take. So an example of that might be for angel.university, which I'm trying to get people to come to to learn how to be angel investors. I might want them to watch a video of the angel podcast. I might want people to fill out a form to learn more, or I might just want people to visit the website and then retarget them over and over again. You have all these different goals and you can do that objective-based advertising with LinkedIn marketing. They have great targeting tools that will help you focus the objective-based advertising down to the job title. So in this case, I could take somebody who is an investor already, an angel investor in their title, and then I can say to that person, I want to generate a lead. You can also do it by company name, location, and more. Maybe I'm doing Angel University in the Northeast Corridor. I want to hit Boston, New York, and DC. You get the idea. LinkedIn ads can help with all these types of businesses, and you'll get the marketing results you need today. Here is a ridiculously generous call to action. Oh, my Lord. See how LinkedIn can help you with a free hundy. That's right, $100 a bean from your boy, J-Cal, and the team at LinkedIn. $100 in LinkedIn ad credits for your first campaign. Visit linkedin.com slash thisweekinstartups. No spaces, no dashes. That's right, linkedin.com. You got that domain. You know that one. It's in your history. I just want you to add slash thisweekinstartups. One word, linkedin.com slash thisweekinstartups. Okay, thanks again, LinkedIn, for supporting the podcast. It's almost like if you if you had the customer support information on a company and customers were extremely dissatisfied and complaining constantly boy what a great industry to go after and if you think about the airline industry which is once again going to get bailed out in all likelihood they ev- they are hated so universally that when somebody with even a modest modest uh, amount of consideration for them emerges like virgin uh, america or you know uh, I'm trying to think of another airline, Ryanair, I guess, in uh, Europe, uh, Southwest originally in the 70s, just thinking slightly about the passenger experience and making it marginally better. They become these rebels and uh, incredibly loved. Yeah, if you could follow all the complaints on the Twitter, 
about a company. You could you might be able to find the verticals. What verticals have you found this in and applied it to as an investor? Uh, healthcare. I think healthcare, like for example, primary care, is uh, quite fragmented, and the NPS isn't quite as bad uh, uh, around primary care physicians as some industries, but it's very fragmented, and certainly the experience can be improved by verticalizing it. Uh, similarly, I, do you have a bet in that yet? Yeah, I, I think Forward Health would qualify. Yeah. So Forward is basically creating an end-to-end experience where we invest in technology innovation across the board to create a better version of the healthcare system where we're responsible for everything. Uh, surprisingly, delighting the customer basically. Uh, so you feel like when you go to uh, a foreign location, you feel more like you're going to Starbucks or a, a sauna, you know, high-end like uh, retreat than sitting in, you know, an old doctor's office and getting exposed to germs like left and right and waiting a half hour for your physician. Uh, but we actually use uh, innovative technology to improve the experience for our customers as well. So um, I think there's many, uh, I mean, as I said, this was kind of a revisionist theory that I had applied with hindsight to a lot of my best investments and realized that there was common denominators versus like a prescriptive formula. Uh, and then only in the last two to three years, they actually applied it like prospectively. It's so gauge. funny. I just did a tweet the other day. Or no, I did it in my private Slack channel. And I said, what is something you subscribe to that is not Netflix, Spotify, and obvious Apple Music that you are absolutely in love with and cannot live without? And one of them was Forward. And I went to the Go Forward website and I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, I, you know, listen, I, I've done well for myself. Uh, I have a, what's called a concierge doctor, which means I pay, I don't know, 10 or 20 grand a year to have a person I can text and, and basically just go anytime I want uh, to get whatever I need. And they, they'll come to the house and take care of family. But Ford looked like that. It was almost yeah. concierge doctor in a, uh, I think it's $199 a month. They do your blood work and... They monitor everything, and you go in and you go on a scale, and they and they do a whole proactive thing. Correct? That's kind of yeah, the value so prop. It's basically like scaling a concierge level quality service, but it's now one hundred fifty dollars a month. And unlike most concierge doctors or perhaps any, we actually invest in technical innovation. So the average concierge doctor is a very proficient doctor. I've always I've had one since two thousand three as well, but he doesn't really know how to invest in technology. He knows how to uh, get the latest expertise and do research on particular uh, like long tail issues, but he's not like creating a, a new version of X that's going to be innovative. It's, so forward, forward has an R and D team. You know, we hire engineers out of Google and Apple, et cetera, and then create a whole new customer experience. But it's also significantly more affordable. If you take one hundred fifty dollars a month times twelve. You know, that's like low thousands of dollars versus ten to thirty thousand dollars, which is where a traditional concierge doctor would price, you know, him or herself. Right. And it's really interesting because my poor concierge doctor has to deal with me listening to Tim Ferriss and other <laughs> folks doing oh, like I, like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like Kevin Rose and all these like maniacs. And I'm like, tell me about Metformin. Should I be on this or not? Because these guys are all Metformin and now and they said that this is the anti-aging drug. Uh, yep. And no, that's a classic example. In fact, my concierge doctor in 2015 convened a panel of experts for me to debate by email whether I should take metformin. Um, where so, did you wind up and, on this? It seems like a no-brainer to lower your uh, it lowers your um, insulin. Is that what it does? And just 
Well, and so in 2015, they convinced me not to do it. Hmm. Um, and I, I actually do intend once this virus stuff is over to, to revisit the topic. I've read a, recently a great book by uh, David Sinclair out of Harvard uh, entitled Lifespan, which is basically argues that aging is a disease. Yes. And like, and like any disease, it's actually preventable if you do the right things. One of the things he highly endorses is taking metformin. Uh, so that alone has you know, re-motivated me to seriously consider it. All right. I got to just CC me on that one because I need to get in on that as well. Um, let's talk a little bit about, I want to get geopolitical for a second, and then I, we'll get into the coronavirus. I, I have long been, I, I guess, a hawk on China because I don't believe in enabling authoritarian human rights uh, violating um, countries and, and, and governments, whether it's Saudi Arabia, and you and I have had this conversation before and we're in alignment on it, and I also put China into that. And now we see uh, with this pandemic that our dependency on China has, uh, you know, impacts that we may not have taken into account, whether it's uh, PPE, you know, and just like a face mask that we can't build face masks in this country or ventilators. And we need to get Elon Musk rallied up to start making ventilators or all of the drugs are made there, recreational and <laughs> prescription. Like we're in a situation where we've optimized the supply chain. These God bless some people at Apple who are who can get you your iPhone 12 or 11 or whatever the latest one is three days after it comes off the line. But we may have optimized this too far to our own detriment and risk with a country that in this case either murdered, jailed, or suppressed whistleblowers who would have changed the outcome of hundreds of thousands of people dying. Am I wrong, right, and how do you feel about it? Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree, as you know. Uh, so let's let's start with the first principles and first historical principles. Our entire rapprochement of China with China was predicated on the idea that we had this mortal enemy in the Soviet Union, and that we would counterbalance the threat posed by the Soviet Union, which was quite lethal and quite scary, by aligning a little bit more with China, starting in 1972 with President Nixon, and then throughout the 1970s. Post the collapse in 1989 of the Soviet Union and the you know pretty much elimination as a, certainly as a fatal threat uh, of Russia slash Soviet Union, nobody took a step back and said, why are the hell are we in business with China in the first place? Like no one really revisited the theory, which the theory was arguably sound that if you have a mortal enemy, you know one might need to find allies, and that might be a you know an interesting way to solve problems across the globe. You know we had various allies in World War II. A lot of them were not um, holier than thou. Um, you know we we, yeah. we had to pick our out. We had to, we couldn't choose. You know everybody to be perfect uh, in World War II because we had a mortal threat. Um, you know posed by Nazi Germany and and, and Japan. So. No one said, wait, 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 the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. Why are, you know, why are we dealing with this authoritative regime? In addition, there is a thesis posed by, you know, several well-meaning government officials and academic types that the best way to deal with authoritative regimes generally was to expose them to economic liberties. That by definition, applying a free market to authoritative country, authoritarian countries would over time lead to democratization. Very controversial, very debatable. There's some examples where it seems to have actually been true. 
and the theory was by you know sort of engaging with China, we would wind up with a less uh, threatening, hostile, authoritative China. I'm not sure that, that was true either. And again, the original idea, maybe call it the 1980s and 90s, wasn't like intellectually broken. It was it was like a theory, and maybe even worth trying. However, by like 2005, six, seven, eight, or nine, the evidence was that the theory wasn't working. Um, so again, people were very slow in taking action based upon data when the world and the evidence and the weight of the evidence was different than the theory would have predicted. I don't have any objections to the theory per se, but I think it was a mistake and you know a pretty severe miscalculation to go from like call it 2008, 9, or 10 to roughly the election of Trump in 2016 without ever revisiting the question of whether entanglement engagement actually worked and it certainly worked vis-a-vis China. To, to his credit, as you know, I'm not the biggest proponent of Trump, but I'm willing to give him credit for the few things that he does very well. One was, even as early as the campaign, was emphasizing the threat posed by China. You know, there's several speeches. And yeah, he's 100% like, correct on it. I mean, and, and yeah. listen, I there's nobody who I would rather see not be in office than Trump. Like On, on the China issue, he is like, Dead on from his campaign, he was like China, 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 China. There's some witty YouTube videos yes. where people extract, you know, to extract these sure. uh, parts of his speech, put them all together. Um, so he's been laser focused on it from the time he started running for office. And you know, even in Silicon Valley, among most of my friends who really don't like Trump, I would say somewhere over the last two years, forty to sixty percent of my friends and colleagues agree with Trump. On China, right? And these are the most liberal of liberal elites. We're talking about, like, we're talking about people who would wish him harm. Like, yeah, they're pretty much close to that. I mean, don't call the Secret Service, yeah, right, but But, um, yeah, but just short of that. um, Just short. Their their natural agreement level with Trump is probably runs at about ten percent on a policy issue, a policy, and on China it's fifty, sixty percent. So you know, he's basically been right in in being willing to criticize the prior approaches to China, to really study the evidence and to confront China, which I think China does pose a threat economically to the US, does pose a threat intellectually on the IP side. And I think we did take our eye off the ball on the manufacturing side. There is a theory of liberal liberal or libertarian economics called comparative advantage, which is mostly right, that philosophically and from an economic efficiency standpoint, you want countries to develop expertise in some products and services, and you want them to do as much of the production in those products and services where they have a comparative advantage on a cost structure basis. However, that doesn't, and that is, that does create economic efficiency for everybody in the planet. Sure. We, we designed the iPhone here and they put it together there, right? That would be the perfect example. Exactly. Very strong argument, very intellectually powerful. However, it doesn't layer into account a strategic dimension, which, which, as an example, we kind of went through this debate ourselves with the dependence on foreign oil in the 1970s. So oil also has the same characteristics. In theory, it should be produced in the place that can produce it, you know, with the greatest deposits and produce and extract it from the land at the lowest possible cost at scale. However, in the 1970s, due to a variety of geopolitical factors, uh, many people in the United States came to the conclusion that we did not want to be, quote unquote, dependent on foreign oil. And so we invested a lot in you know, other techniques to create a strategic petroleum reserve in the U.S. Um, to innovate around the process of extracting oil, think fracking. And actually, we wound up 
you know, 30 years later to be like the largest exporter of oil. Yeah, uh, mission accomplished. Yeah. And, you know, in fact, nobody in the Middle East has any leverage on us anymore. But that, that was a conscious decision from a geopolitical standpoint to invest in things that might not have been economically efficient. So now let's talk about manufacturing, particularly around the drugs. That's become, uh, you know, a recognition that almost nobody was paying attention to. Like what fraction of prescription drugs are manufactured in China? Well, it turns out every version of penicillin, you know, the, the, the more modern versions, we do not have the capacity to create antibiotics in the United States at the moment. That's obviously not a great situation, let alone, you know, the PPEs and the ventilators, which have specific, you know, kind of triage use. But we've basically not been paying attention to vulnerabilities that we've created by using economic efficiency writ large. And I think another point that you made in passing, which is worth highlighting explicitly, is a lot of the recreational drug problems we have in the United States almost surely emanate from China. Yeah, fentanyl is made there. Yeah. It's actually, I believe, 70%. made in Wuhan, and 70%. then they ship it to Mexico. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the entire opioid crisis in the United States is, to some extent, the responsibility of China. 70% of all of it is manufactured in China with the government's consent. Yeah, well, like, nothing in can, China gets done without the government's consent. Let's be clear. Yeah. They've got their thumb on the scale. So if we just pause on this for a second, and then we're going to seem like super hawks now. Uh, but if we were to take the death toll in the last two years from coronavirus and opioids and attribute them on a percentage to their origin, which I think some people feel is xenophobic, but the origin is the origin. If you're making the fentanyl, that's the origin of it. And if this disease came out of Wuhan and specifically out of a lab in Wuhan and you suppressed it, you're guilty of the two things that, you know, outside of suicide might be two of, uh, what are they, two of the top five killers in the United States right now? Absolutely. So like, let's, let's be very specific on the fentanyl. This is not a drug that can be manufactured under the radar. It requires very sophisticated industrial equipment. So first of all, nothing goes on in, in China without the knowledge and awareness of the CCP. And approval, because if they're aware of it and they don't like it, you're in jail. So well, as we've seen in many, many cases. However, like this is not something you just do in your garage. There are some kinds of- not meth labs. This is not that. No. This is like high quality, high production, very expensive equipment. And so one way or the other, someone has to account for this. Uh, you know, I, I think this is so fundamentally destructive to the U.S. and such obviously the fault and responsibility of the Chinese government. And no one has really held them accountable for this. Then, of course, you have the coronavirus, which is debatable about exactly how it originated. Although I think it is quite interesting and arresting that China suppressed every piece of information designed to get to the origin of the virus. Now, if you would think if you're a normal human being and there's this new virus that's killing lots of people, you would sort of want to figure out how did this start? Like, how do we prevent it from happening again? So what is instead, what is China do? It basically jails, murders, or expels anybody who's interested in doing research, whether like scientific research or journalistic research on the origins of the virus. Clearly, there's something to hide that they're hiding and masking. Yes. I personally believe it's probably more they're hiding and masking negligence or gross negligence or reckless disregard for human life than a conscious strategy. But anytime the government expels all the journalists, bans scientific research, 
and jails people who are trying to whistleblow, it's, it's not because the government has nothing better to do. As we navigate unprecedented times, Silicon Valley Bank believes that collective action is the best way to overcome the challenges we're all up against. This is why Silicon Valley Bank, in partnership with Founders Pledge, has formed the COVID-19 Global Impact and Innovation Fund. This fund will deliver resources directly to organizations around the world that can help make the most immediate impact in the fight against COVID-19. Silicon Valley Bank has made an initial $1 million investment to fund this critical work and invites you to join them in helping those in need. Silicon Valley Bank continues to offer solutions that support small businesses and the innovation economy. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has supported countless innovators with a passion for solving the world's biggest problems, and today remains committed to helping its clients and employees and our communities manage through these uncertain times. To learn more about the Silicon Valley Bank COVID-19 Global Impact and Innovation Fund, visit svb.com slash impact. Yeah, let's take a moment and pause on this and unpack it for a second. If a pandemic broke out in any other country, you know, Africa, the United States, wherever, Europe, and the government disappeared, the whistleblowers, how would a rational court of law or public opinion or um, just any just basic common sense look at the disappearance of a whistleblower in the United States, as screwed up as our system can be at times, we make movies and heroes out of whistleblowers. It is a core fundamental um, relief valve in democracy to have these and to champion them. And you don't even have to agree with them. I mean, I, I'm no fan of Julian Assange or um, what's his name? Who's the other big whistleblower in Russia right now? Um, oh, uh, Snowden. Snowden. Like, I, I'm no fan of either of them. I think they're both in Russia's pocket and have always been. I'll put that aside because uh, that's a debatable one, at least in the in some circles. But uh, it feels like they are directly responsible. The Chinese government, and this is not this is no longer a conspiracy theory, uh, for experimenting with these uh, strains of the virus in that laboratory and disappearing whistleblowers. These are now irrefutable uh, and covered widely in press, but we're not talking about it. Yeah, no, I, I think like there's, you know, lots of legal principles that would apply here, but certainly. And you're a uh, litigator, right? Weren't you a litigator at some point? Uh, I was. For a brief minute? For three, three and a half years after clerking. So unfortunately, four and a half years. Wow. Uh, I, I sort of wish I could have applied that, you know, four and a half years to another startup. I was about to say, being a lawyer is just like, you look at your time and you're like, did what came out of that, right? Uh, you know. Sometimes something does, right? Yeah, I mean. Uh, I actually enjoyed practicing law more than some of my colleagues. Like Peter Thiel was a lawyer for three months and four days. And David Sachs went to law school, but never practiced law. So arguably they were much sharper and smarter and valued their time more than I did. Mm. But I actually enjoyed the process of practicing law as a litigator. And that's why it probably took me four and a half years to extract myself from it. And there are some lessons that apply. Um, you know, unfortunately, I would say over the last 30 years, almost every part of American society is heavily infused with law and regulation and being relatively adept at asking uh, questions about law and regulation can be helpful both as an entrepreneur and uh, executive and investor. It's not by accident that many of my best investments have derived from fields that are heavily regulated. Think financial services, housing, IP. Um, so I think finance, that, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it can, it can be a, a, a strong, a unique 
perspective. However, four and a half years plus three years of law school, the opportunity cost of seven and a half years probably you know isn't justifiable. But I actually try to leverage. That made it made you sharp. I look at my journalism time in a similar fashion because it made me a very inquisitive person who mastered communications that then served me well vis-a-vis this podcast and other things in my in later in my career. Would it not be, uh, or what do you think the probability is that when all is said and done, if we do find out that uh, there was negligence on the part of China, what would the proper reaction of the rest of the world be toward China to forgive it uh, and say, hey, it could happen to anybody or to say, Things need to change here, and or we're just going to start the process of disengagement because Japan, from what I understand, has now started the disengagement process and is subsidizing the moving of their company's factories out of China to other locations. And there are plenty of places with low, low cost labor that would love to have factories, Sri Lanka, Vietnam, et cetera, uh, Pakistan, India, they would love to get some of this work. Should disengagement now be the the new approach to China? Is the slow untangling of this engagement? And is that dangerous because it could send them further uh, into the wrong direction? I I believe that that's exactly what we're going to see is disengagement. Japan is not a, um, let's call it reckless country. They're pretty conservative in their geopolitical actions over the last 50 years. 100%. India is also going to do the same thing. Um, I think the United States is going to be actually a bipartisan initiative uh, to rebuild manufacturing in the U.S., at least for uh, national uh, things that are perceived to be relevant to national security. I think, you know, people have been moaning the lack of consensus and bipartisan cooperation. Ironically enough, one of the areas where you're going to see, you know, jointly sponsored legislation in both the House and the Senate is going to be around rebuilding our manufacturing capabilities in the United States as a function of not wanting to be derivative and dependent upon China. So I think it's actually going to be um, one of the rare bipartisan cooperation, you know, sort of instant. Which would be wonderful if we could unite under that concept of, uh, you know, America. And it's not xenophobic. It's we need to have some security for our citizens that if things go poorly, we can sustain ourselves. And by the way, we have the southern neighbor who we've had a wonderful relationship for a long time who also likes to build things. Why are we not deepening that relationship and building factories there, which are a hop skip from Texas? No, I, I think we will. And we'll also use some automation. You know, yeah. it, one of our competitive strengths is doing some manufacturing. Not all manufacturing can be done like, yet by robotics, but we'll definitely use that. And that may allow the economics to be not as severe mm. as what, you know, what they might otherwise be if we, if we solely manufactured in the U.S. But I think there's going to be, certainly if Trump wins re-election, this is going to be a major priority for the United States. I don't, I think Biden, you know, is, is guilty of really being quite favorable to China over his career. Um, you know, Trump rolled out a new ad that I think is going to be the arc of the general election campaign where he's going to call, uh, you know, the n- nickname uh, Biden, Beijing Biden. Wow. That'll stick. I think that is going to be the primary debate if it's Trump versus Biden is Biden's been so wrong for 40 years on foreign policy and particularly on the question of China. And as China becomes the top level concern that many Americans have, the Beijing Biden is going to be a real problem uh, for for the Democratic candidate. Now, it depends on who he selects as the VP. There's some VP candidates that are actually pretty hostile to China themselves. 
um, and actually have a pretty good track record of criticizing China where appropriate. Yeah. And there's and there's some that are you know much down the middle of Beijing Biden. Yeah. So for example, two, neither of which neither of these two senators do I like, but uh, Elizabeth Warren's actually being pretty critical of China. Yeah. Um, and has put out some pretty strong statements uh, about China and Hong Kong and you know various issues. Uh, whereas Kamala Harris is a Beijing Biden you know groupie. Yeah. Um, she's very she's very friendly to China. Doesn't say anything wrong with China, et cetera. It's amazing to be the people who don't see on the left, who don't see anything wrong with a country that has a million people in jail because of their religion and will pick up somebody in Hong Kong who has a bookstore and reeducate them for three years and will put somebody in a gulag for selling a VPN. And this is the left. They have totally sold out their entire position on human rights. The left is so hypocritical on China, uh, on human rights issues. You know, I think the Hong Kong... It became manifest to many Americans in some of the Hong Kong debates last year, you know, with the NBA and, uh, you know, how the NBA acted. I think it really clarified that there's right and wrong in the world. And China certainly isn't on the right side uh, for many, many people where it had been a bit obtuse, a little bit abstract. You know, for example, you know, I find one of the most unfortunate uh, moral acts by the United States in my lifetime anyway was um, the 1979 agreement not to recognize Taiwan. So we basically took a democratic government and made them the black sheep of the international community to appease China. Yeah. And, and very few people have been willing to revisit that and, until, this, until the Hong Kong protests emerged and until China started cracking down. There's now a lot more attention to this issue. Um, I think what we're going to do, fortunately, someone uh, gave me the spark of a great idea recently on Twitter, which it seems to have some legs, which is, I think, admitting Taiwan into the World Health Organization. Oh, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, it's such it, the brilliance of that strategically is so great, and the momentum behind it is going to be almost unstoppable, and it's going to drive the Chinese leadership absolutely insane. They're Here's the be, thing about the Chinese leadership. They, they can't stop that. Um, like, where's the UN and various other world bodies, they would absolutely be able to stop the WHO is such a brilliant idea, and I actually got it from a more left-leaning journalist. Uh, uh, but no, I saw it trending on Twitter, yeah. and it's it's such a brilliant idea. And if you think about that moment with Hong Kong and the protests there, Daryl Morey, who is, I believe, the greatest GM in the league, I mean, you're talking about somebody who's assembled superstar after superstar, gets thrown under the bus by the NBA for simply tweeting that he supports the, the rights of the protesters. An American is ostracized for defending freedom of assembly. It's unconscionable. It's insane. It's like, you know, this is the problem with the entanglement strategy and the Beijing-Biden problem is Americans were told that if we allowed American companies to uh, generate profits in China, that the Chinese regime would liberalize. We and would have influence. Not, we would have influence. Yeah, we'd have influence, and therefore they would eventually become less authoritarian. But that's just not true. And in fact, you could argue they turned it around so that the, the companies in the U.S. that are derivative on U.S. profits think like Hollywood and the NBA, particularly the entertainment sector, are actually more likely to be held hostage to the Chinese leadership to, than to the American government. It's such a brilliant point, because if you think about it, and now you want to talk about liberal elites and just how bankrupt they are, um, the liberal elites in Hollywood are more than willing to change the endings of their goddamn movies and corrupt their art 
to get the incremental, call it 10, 20%. I mean, we're not talking 50% of the revenue. We're talking about like an incremental 10, 20%. It'd be like you and I getting an extra point in a company or two. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. How much money do you need as Tom Cruise? How much money do you need as the NBA, as LeBron James, whoever it happens to be, to not come out and stand for human rights? It would be better, literally, to leave China and make 10% less money than to be in China and for LeBron James to have to be, I mean, he came out upset at Daryl Morey, which is just insane. We need to stand for human rights in this country. What do we stand for if we do not stand for basic human rights? And this engagement has now flipped on us to now entanglement's one word, but being held hostage is the other word. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, there's someone else pointed out and observed that you look at all the Hollywood movies, you know, created over the last 40 years, it's almost impossible to find a Chinese villain. Whereas like the canonical villain is like a Russian, you know, mobster, yes. Russian, you know, oligarch, Russian yeah. somebody. Um, and th- that's the function. And that's the, the result of the Chinese market being lucrative, Chinese ownership of some of these companies. They basically used it. Uh, you know, to basically edit scripts. Right. Why on earth would we allow TikTok in this country if we're not allowed to have Twitter, Snapchat, and Facebook in China? Yeah, no, I think that's going to become also an area for bipartisan cooperation. Um, There's going to be a quid pro quo requirement that, you know, censorship works. We don't believe in censorship. The United States should not be involved in censoring Chinese companies. I actually believe China should be allowed to express itself and disseminate its propaganda here. However, if they're going to bar content from the United States to be disseminated in China, we should have somewhat of a reciprocal policy. 100%. I mean, but I, I do believe, I'm not somebody who believes that Twitter should be censoring Chinese government viewpoints on Twitter, for example. However, definitely Chinese companies, if they want to compete in the U.S., the similar or comparable companies must be allowed to share information in China. It it makes no sense to censor the Chinese government on Twitter or YouTube. We want to see exactly how they're doing their propaganda. We want to put a spotlight on it. Better, I mean, you probably saw that meme where they were making fun of us for not putting on masks. And they're like, we told you to put on masks. Like It feels like this war, when it does go down, is going to be a meme war on Twitter. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, it, and many wars have been, you know, uh, propaganda battles yeah. before. This isn't completely unprecedented. Like in the 1970s, we created Radio Free Europe to yep. broadcast into the Eastern Bloc. Yeah, um, Berlin. You know, yeah. yeah, and it worked. It was very effective. Um, so, you know, there's always some degree of propaganda framing ideological battles that go into a cold or hot war. So I, I I wouldn't be surprised if that happens here, but I don't believe that the U.S. government or the tech companies should say, you know, just because you're owned or driven by Chinese leadership that you shouldn't have a voice in the United States. But I, I do think that, therefore, at the same time, American enterprises need to be able to express other viewpoints in China. Otherwise, we're kind of distorting the marketplace of ideas. Uh uh, we need to think about this relationship deeply. Let's talk about startups. Uh, You know, just to put a a cherry on top, I would not be opposed to taking our stimulus bill uh, and then cutting and pasting it into an invoice and shipping it to China and saying, 
here's an invoice for fentanyl. Here's the number of deaths at 10 million per death. We're taking this off the debt. And then here is the, the stimulus package. Um, if you guys did, in fact, suppress this disease and the, the people who are the whistleblowers, we're going to expect a little bit of a credit here on the debt. Crazy idea? Or do you think that's something that will come up as a debate point in the next year? Especially with the well, election. It's definitely, it's definitely going to be debated. It's definitely on the table. I'm not sure about the wisdom of like repudiating debt, even for good reasons. That said, there are examples through history where versions of restitution and reparations have been used, sometimes better than others. You know, obviously, there's a theory of history that says World War II was somewhat a function of inflated uh, reparations imposed on Germany. Um, you can debate the theory and you know what what uh, the appropriate cause was and whether it would have happened absent reparations anyway. But so one has to be careful um, with what one does. Yeah. I don't think the answer of exactly what policy to proceed with is easy. But I think there absolutely will be a specific um, you know reaction that the administration and with some degree of bipartisan consensus supports. Yeah, I guess it'll be based on if it's negligence, gross negligence, or like literal, um, yeah, suppressing of this uh, information. Why is the stock market having a V-shaped recovery when everybody was saying, I was talking to Sachs, our mutual friend, and Chamath. I was saying, feels like we're going to have like a W or a Charlie Brown sweater type situation. Sachs said he thinks it's going to be an L or a U. Chamath was in the U category. I was like, eh, I think I'm kind of a W. Where do you stand on the, the shape of the chart? Why is it going so bonkers right now and everything's coming back so delightfully? So I agree that the recovery is likely to be um, suppressed and protracted. So more like 2000 to 2003 versus like an instant rebound, absent like a heroic discovery of a vaccine quickly that can be manufactured quickly and has like 99% applicability, which is so unlikely that, you know, that's the only thing I see that would create a quick spark. That said, um, and I think this is pretty critical, I think what, what the stock market is doing <laughs> arguably is a defense of, you know, the old corporate finance theory, which is in theory, you value a public you know, equity by the discounted cash flows over like 20 years. And in theory, there's nothing about this crisis that should affect the ability of tech companies to earn profits over a 10, 20 year horizon versus a one to three year makes horizon. total logical sense. Now, now, and most people don't totally believe in efficient capital markets anymore. And, you know, corporate finance theory has its proponents and certainly its uh, critics. But to some extent, you could look at the evidence and say, if anything, maybe there is a step function um, acceleration in the adoption of technology and digital transformation of various industries. Uh, think, you know, telemedicine as an example. And that we've moved, you know, Mike Moritz had a good quote about maybe accelerated, you know, X years into the future as a function of, uh, you know, a crisis. You can kind of stitch this stuff together into somewhat of a coherent theory, but to me, it defies a lot of logic. So, I'm somewhat unpersuaded, and there, therefore, I'm more nervous that eventually there's a trigger that really crashes the markets again. And then, then we look a lot more like 2000 to 2003. Because what happened in 2000, just to remind people or you know inform people that weren't around yet, yeah. um, we uh, we saw a, mar a, a you know, substantial market uh, correction in late March. I think it was like March 28, 2000. Yeah. But then June. There was a second drop in June, 
that was really the stake to the heart yeah. of the technology, uh, you know, NASDAQ window. And it wasn't until the second drop that everybody agreed that this was a completely new world. Right. And so I think we may see, you know, another significant market correction, even if right now everything looks great. I mean, I was looking at, you know, some stock prices today and some people were hitting nine month and 12, 12 month highs, which is makes no sense. Yeah. That, that, that's a little strange. It feels a little strange. Um, and it's gotta be perplexing. Uh, when you look at your own portfolio, and I don't know if you're having this experience, three or four founders call you, and uh, they're doing layoffs, furloughs, and they're curled up in a ball, you know, and they need a hug. And they got another group call you and say, we've had our three best months ever under coronavirus and pandemic. And I feel really guilty about it. And I don't want anybody to know, but we're hiring. Are you having the same thing in your portfolio? Well, across a wide portfolio, you know, obviously we have over 100 companies in the Founders Fund portfolio. And, you know, we see everything from complete collapse, like 80% to 90% of revenues completely evaporated overnight, basically starting March 16th, to some acceleration in some companies. And then, you know, somewhere it's basically in the short term neutral, like you can't see any, you know, metrics um, changing, any empirical changes. Which I would assume is the SaaS businesses, right? Like it's not like people are racing to cancel their Slack or something. In the short term, the short I think term. it would take long, longer for the churn to materialize. Uh, so, but we have a lot of we have a lot of companies. I tend to like to come uh, fund companies that invest in technology, in tools and services for micro merchants and SMBs. They're clearly impacted, sure. you know, relatively severely, at least in the short term. Um, so, across the portfolio, we've seen everything. I'd say there's a clear weight though towards the negative side in the short term. Got it's it. it's not it's not fifty fifty. The distribution tails are very very different. There's a couple of outlier companies where arguably this has accelerated their growth and opportunity. Most, it's a much more fundamental challenge. And even in the some of the positive demand shock companies, they have their own set of challenges that are actually potentially just as fatal. Mm. So I'd say it's very, very rare to see something like a DoorDash with, where yeah. this is yeah. an unequivocally positive development for DoorDash. There's not that many of the DoorDashes in, in you know in the March and April timeframe. I know you you were an angel in Lyft, I believe. Lyft at six seven billion dollars, which you kind of dipped down to, and now it's had a nice little rebound. Why has Lyft not been purchased by, you know, Amazon or Google or something like this at this depressed valuation? Wouldn't that be like the ultimate takeout candidate, or to merge with a DoorDash or Grubhub? Um, I think there's more um, nuance there than most people realize, and this applies to Uber as well. Um, if you think about um, two reasons why there's much more nuance, the delivery of food um, peaks at certain times of day. Mm. And some of those peaks, particularly the dinner time, peaks during the week at the same time people travel. Right. So you don't have you don't have excess supply um, in a normal world. Bummer. I think there there are some weekend times where there's some differences between food delivery windows and peak travel times. But during the week, the dinner hour is rush hour commute, and so you don't really unlock logistical delivery. And you slow people down too, right? So the delivery stays yeah. twice as long. So so I think that's one. Secondly, um, in the driver pool, whether they're DoorDash dashers or drivers, there's some people who will. Overly happy providing either service. And it's just a question of which company treats them better, pays them better, et cetera. Very normal considerations. There's some people who strongly prefer, though, to be sitting in their car and not have to get out. 
And there are some people who strongly prefer not to have customer contact. I mean, customers are a pain in the ass. Uh, you know, people can be jerks. People can be drunk. You, you know, got to talk to people, right? Yeah. So I think there's somewhat of a bimodal distribution in who wants to drive, uh, like an Uber or Lyft, and who wants to deliver, you know, food. So it's not quite as simple as just acquiring to get the logistical capacity. Will we is- see big M&A? coming out of this it seems like such an opportunity i mean i know apple is just brain dead when it comes to deploying capital intelligently but zuckerberg has been incredible microsoft has been incredible google has been incredible historically with m&a why would those companies not be stepping up to the plate right now and and trying to grab some of these assets do we think we'll have an m&a uh renaissance in the next year or just people too scared to make big bets I think people are scared and terrified to make big bets, particularly like the logistics companies, because companies that are not acclimated to running a, a bit, I think of bits and atoms, like there's companies that are all software, it's bits and it's very, very different management challenge, different type of employee pools than people who have bits and atoms where yeah. you have real people in the real world that require supervision. So Amazon you know, has been a company for a long time that's through warehouses had to run like... Mm. A lot of normal people. Yeah. Apple, when they got into retail, had to learn how to do that. But they actually kind of run the business very separately in retail versus Apple qua Apple. Um, Google has never really been a bits and atoms company. And every time they try, they fail miserably. I, I think Facebook would suffer the same set of challenges. Uh, Zillow, when they tried to compete with Opendoor, has had massive challenges in going from a bits, you know, advertising-based business to having lots of people at scale in the real world. And, you know, Opendoor is just dominating. So Amazon has that opportunity. Imagine if Amazon bought Airbnb out of this. What an amazing brand combination. It's not the craziest idea. Amazon can certainly afford it. Um, they've, there's several key executives at Airbnb that are longtime Amazon veterans. And so there's probably some you know, trust there. Um, but I don't, think, I don't think Airbnb really wants to sell, which it, you, know, you really can only buy what's for sale in some ways. Um, I think, uh, uh, but... Did Airbnb make a mistake not going public last year? not doing the direct listing, waiting too long, being too scared to go public was the criticism I heard. Do you think they were scared to go public? I won't, com- I won't comment specifically on Airbnb oh. you know, as a share, as a, well, the share, meaningful shareholder. Um, but I will say globally, the Keith view of the world is very similar to the Bill Gurley view of the world. And for 20 years, I've been advocating companies should go public as early as humanly possible, period. Why? Story. Why? Um, well, let me walk you through. And in fact, I have a chapter for those who really want to dig into this. And Eli Gill wrote a great book called The High Growth Handbook. There's one chapter in the book that is a fun- is basically my views expressed at length. So someone who's seriously considering going public should read the chapter versus like this 30-second yeah, description. 30-second description is every reason not to go public is an excuse. There is no good reason not to go public. So, for example, let's start with like the most commonly uh, broadcast excuse. Oh, it's difficult to innovate. Well, when I always start with people in Silicon Valley, when they say that, I say, okay, give me your list of the top five or six most innovative companies in the world. Inevitably, the list is Amazon, Tesla, maybe Google, maybe Apple, Facebook, et cetera. All, literally all. Other than SpaceX that ever get on the list are large cap, market cap, yeah. publicly trading companies. Nobody other than, nobody ever names a company that isn't named SpaceX that's private, ever. Like I interview hundreds of people, talk to them, they get the list. There's never a private company on the list except SpaceX. So it's obviously possible to be innovative while being a public company. Secondly, being public is a binary process. Once you're out the door, the market will fluctuate and your market cap may fluctuate. 
but you're permanently able to tap into the advantages of being a public company, which include access to capital in, in, in different ways, debt and equity under different scenarios that a private company wouldn't have access to, um, degrees of flexibility around M&A. Um, it's very for difficult sure. for a private company to engage in M&A because you know, it's like, what am I worth? What's my stock worth versus yours? Yeah, how over how overpriced is my valuation versus yours, right? And where am I in the stack versus the last round of investors? Yeah, it wasn't by accident, for example, that when eBay finally acquired PayPal back in 2002, we'd gone through you know two years, this is public and chronicle, we'd gone through like two years of the acquisition talks with eBay and it never landed anywhere. The only time it had a shot of actually working was after PayPal went public and there was a fair market value stamped on us. So they could no longer debate at least, you know, what we were worth. The only question then was what's the premium, the acquisition premium. And that's always 30%, right? I mean, it's always 30%. It was less less in our case, but fundamentally there's a band around what the acquisition premium should be is a lot tighter than what the hell are you worth? Um, so I, I think that the other excuse you hear is, oh, employee morale, you know, will fluctuate based on the stock price. And I think, first of all, that's just a management weakness. If your employee morale is completely derivative on your stock price, someone's not doing a good job explaining the vision, communicating the vision, the priorities, et cetera. But more importantly, as an executive, I liked being able to look at our stock price and kind of understand where morale. Yeah, might be that's floating. like saying an NBA team would do better if yeah. we didn't have a score for the game. And it was every game exactly. was a dr- it was a everybody be happier, game. Everybody yeah. be happier if nobody won or lost. Performance would go up. It's like no yeah, yeah. performance Which goes up course, when there's winners and losers. Of course, and it's then and in addition, I actually liked position. as a manager being able to see the stock price because I knew I could counter manage it if I could tap into it. Versus a lot of things that create a morale are very soft and difficult to detect for a while. Like for example, at Square, there's this famous demoralization error when like I changed the menu on our food and stopped serving bacon. And uh, <laughs> up for breakfast, and all the engineers like went crazy. Yeah, and it took like two weeks to try to undercover why the engineers were going. Literally, crazy. when your company is debating the cafeteria or parking, like when somebody brings up parking to me, or I see a founder come to me with the designs, and they're debating the designs of the lobby, I'm like, oh my lord, do not even think about the lobby of this company. That is the least thing that you need to worry about. What what do you think the outcome of a twenty or thirty million unemployment, uh, twenty or thirty million people being unemployed, unemployment being in that fifteen to twenty percent range over the next year will be, um, for specifically startups and people running mom and pop businesses? What is the impact of of those people being pulled out of the con- uh, consumption pool and or working class? Well, Pluses I, I and minuses. It, let, me, let me start with a different prism on it. I think okay. the impact's, impact's going to be catastrophic, but not necessarily from an economic standpoint as much as a healthcare perspective. So the reason why is I, I think the evidence has been clear for 50 years that people's psychological happiness is derived from having meaningful work. 100%. That, that is not even up for society. debate. It's, it's proven. Yeah, well, but some people forget this all the time. And they're like, if we just give people money, they'll be happy. I'm like, absolutely not. People's sense of worth is derivative from constructing things in the real world and providing goods and services. And being them. affiliated with those people building as well. If we just look absolutely, at Maslow, the absolutely. affiliation and the joy of being part of something. There's so much evidence that like, for example, when people retire, you can do these AB studies, people die earlier. There's they so commit many suicide, they start drinking. Yeah, so many catastrophic consequences. Uh, there's a study I tweeted today out of Australia that 
Australia, which went into lockdown and has had pretty good or a moderate version of lockdown, has had pretty good um, success in reducing you know the spread of the virus. Suicides are actually up fifty percent in Australia. Of course, it's like what happens if you isolate human beings and tell them to sit at home by themselves. They're going to have all kinds of health issues, from suicide to depression to diabetes, because they're sitting on their sofa. There's so many bad things. opioid abuse. Like if you're yeah. if you're feeling all that pain from losing your job, you're going to want to turn it off. So alcohol is going to go through the roof, right? So the problem is like a conversion funnel. We're like measuring the top of the funnel, which is the easiest to measure measure short term deaths, hospitalizations associated with the virus. All of these are very long term. Other than suicide, actually, one of the reasons why it actually popped in the study was suicide tends to happen faster, right? Versus depression, More acute. And diabetes, and all that stuff. It takes heart heart disease. All it takes longer time. But we're going to have catastrophic problems because of what we're doing to human beings. And so we need to put people back to work. We need to ha- allow people to engage with their friends and their family, to join associations and group, as you said. It provides joy. Playing soccer, with, whether it's playing soccer with people, creates joy. Exercising with people creates joy for some. But people, people are social animals. And if they, there's studies about like, if you don't have, you know, a certain number of friends, you tend to have more healthcare issues. You tend to die earlier. All of this research is well established, yet all of the healthcare and policy professionals are forgetting it every day. It's so weird. And the whole dialogue is around, you know, it seems like the people who work behind keyboards at the New York Times are more, and you probably saw my little debate with uh, the social media um, <laughs> critic there who now has blocked me, but she was very quick to point out, you know, how dumb poor people were to want to go back to work and i said to her i was like you know said the person making six figures writing about memes from the new york times like oh it's crazy like so here's how i framed it on twitter and i've yet to see who's the single most prominent advocate for keeping the economy locked down who has lost their job or had their income cut by 50 percent. name a single person yeah who's trying to keep the society closed and commerce closed who literally has suffered personally yeah, you're not going to find it. And this is the crazy thing about, you know, where we are today with media collapsing. And they're so clueless as to how they're perceived that they could literally, whether it's Hollywood or the New York Times, there's such a lack of empathy for everybody who lives between those two pinpoints on the map, who has to go to work in order to put food on the goddamn table. And you're sitting there writing about Snapchat memes for $100,000 a year, and you're calling these people dumb because they want to go back to work doing salt-of-the-earth labor? It's insane. It's it's almost deranged. Obviously, the person deleted the tweet because they got so much blowback. But we've lost the script, I think, on the impact of this. I said, is it possible that suicides and overdoses could exceed... And I like to form things in, in the form of a question on Twitter because it, it, it allows a little more discussion. Is it possible? Yeah. And it's a little bit of like a trolling technique as well. <laughs> yeah. Is it possible that those two things could exceed it? And, and the immediate response from the, the, the liberal elites was, that's impossible. And then I said, well, if we're looking at 150,000 deaths, it seems completely conceivable to me that you could have 150,000 ODs, obesity deaths, smoking deaths. Uh, and suicide deaths from that. That actually seems in the range. It could be 50, it could be 100. Yeah, no, I, I think it depends on your time frame. Like, yeah. I think some of this is classically, we're just forgetting about some things are very bad for people. It just takes a longer time frame to materialize, but we're going to see cohorts of people with massive issues. And that's why I think like things like UBI are like really stupid. It's like just giving people a check is not creating self-worth. 
It's not creating that that part of the, the joining of a movement and accomplishing things that is fundamental to human happiness and has been for centuries. It, it It's very weird when... I understand the intellectual curiosity of UBI, and I understand wanting to study it. So I don't blame Sam Altman and some of these folks. Even Elon is like, maybe that's something we should look into. Fine with looking into it, but man, an idle mind, whenever you see 20% of young males in a society have that kind of free time, it leads to riots in the street. Whether it's in Greece or the Middle East, it leads to- Or France. Like France, like you had the protesters running writ large. I mean, France did UBI 20 years ago. It didn't work. Um, like, this is not like some novel new idea that's never been tested. Humans need um, meaning in their life. And meaning comes from creating things. And yes, it the creation process is linked to economic substance. But if you just provide one without the other, you're actually worse off. Yes. Literally scooping ice cream. If we did have a UBI situation, having those people, I said, if you want to have UBI, why don't you just triple the number of teachers in society and increase the number of years that schools develop with people? Because then you get a double impact. People don't go into the workforce for another four years because you get more years of education. And you've tripled the number of teachers. You created more jobs. And those are some of the most fulfilling uh, jobs in the world. As we wrap here, tell me what is your most positive outlook on the world going forward when you um, are sitting there at home losing your mind like I am and many others? What hope do you have for the future that keeps you positive? Let's end this on a positive note. I do think there are some positive developments and there always are. Anytime there's volatility and flux in the ecosystem in the world, there's opportunities for innovation because basically inertia, gravity is not your friend as an entrepreneur. So typically when there's platform changes or cultural changes, it's easier to break through with new ideas. So for example, I'll give you a tangible one, um, homeschooling. So I've been a uh, longtime proponent of homeschooling. I think the evidence uh, about outcomes, both social and academic, is unequivocally positive. Uh, homeschoolers will outperform virtually any school in America. And it's been a steady growth. Homeschooling has grown considerably over the last 20 years um, to 4 million Americans, I think, last year were homeschooled. So pretty considerable audience. But this new world order is unlocking the opportunity 100%. for homeschooling on steroids. Because people are realizing that basically a lot of schooling is babysitting. fancy babys babysitting. It's babysitting. And, and the reason why we don't have innovation and next generation entrepreneurs and cutting edge scientists and breakthrough, you know, Nobel Prize winning people is our schools are regressing to the middle of the bell curve. They're not teaching excellence like we did post Sputnik. And I think the homeschooling movement will allow us to create more thoughtful, more original, more brilliant thinkers and allow parents to have more control, which is also a good thing. So I'm excited about that as an example. As I said, I've been looking for a company to fund for two to three years publicly on Twitter. I actually I found have one, one, Dexter. You got to check it out. They, we I, I actually it. found. I actually did find one before the virus, but I think now you can see the world coming together yeah, in a way that's going to be very good, very good for everybody. So I think that's the key: is to find um, the opportunities where you can improve. Telemedicine, same thing for sure. Telemedicine, telemedicine had been growing. You know, a pretty good clip. There's some publicly traded companies that have done fairly well. However, the ability to conveniently get a diagnosis for call it 30 to 50% of conditions, as opposed to taking time off work, commuting across the city, Absolutely. waiting in, sitting in a waiting room for a doctor, more efficient for everybody. to other sick patients, 
Yeah. So like, for example, um, I saw public data that Cleveland Clinic went from roughly 3,000 video calls a day to 64,000. The ratio at Stanford went from about Stanford Hospital went from about 1,500 a day to about 70 something thousand a day. So this is a permanent transformation. And that's amazing. Amazing. It's going to be good for access. It's going to be good for cost. And it's going to be good for customer convenience. Yeah. All right. On that note, Keith Raboy is uh, making his uh, quarterly visit to This Week in Startups. Uh, so you can mark your calendars 90 days from today. We have sent an invite to invite a calendar to you, Keith. Let's just do it every 100 days. That sounds great. I hope I can do the next one. I hope I can do the next one in person. That would be fan-freaking-tastic. I cannot wait to go to a Warriors game and go have some fucking ramen. I cannot take it anymore. I'm losing my goddamn mind. Keith Raboy, everybody, follow him on Twitter, R-A-B-O-I-S. He's investing uh, and uh, just one of the great thinkers and agendaless participants in this podcast. That's what I'm always looking for is the person who comes on here is intellectually honest and not trying to sell something. And that's actually something you could do too. Go to thisweekinstartups.com slash Slack and join the conversation there. Thanks again, Keith. Stay safe. Okay, brother? Pleasure. Thank you. All right. We'll talk soon. Cheers. Bye.